Hello and welcome to Sartorial Stories, LCF's object-based podcast in which I, Susanna Cordner, Senior Research Fellow of Archives, interview someone who works in or with fashion and textiles and ask them to bring in an item from their work or from their wardrobe, which we use as the basis of the conversation. I'm joined today by Georgia Morley, a curator at the London Transport Museum. Georgia, thank you for joining us. Um, so, as I said, in this series we invite in kind of a range of people who, whose roles involve fashion or textiles. So perhaps to get us started, could you please introduce your practice, your role and what you do? Yep, um, so I am a curator at London Transport Museum. I've worked here for three and a half years nice. now, which has gone very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I really started off at the museum working on an illustration exhibition. So I did that for three months. And then I kind of um, went into the curatorial department and started working on um, conservation and collections care, which I did for around a year. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of focusing on um, partly with our poster collection, but then also with models within the collection. After that, I um, worked on a project with Maquette, which uh, was a Heritage Lottery funded project uh, that was for a year and now I am a kind of general curator, <laughs> I do a bit of everything. Um, so I work with the poster collection on um, poster parades which is a display which rotates every three months um, and is on a new theme every three months. Um, and I'm also working on the next exhibition called Hidden London, which is opening next year. Wow, brilliant. Quite a range. And it seems there quite a clear progression from project to project, but also yeah. a combination within it with kind of collection care and being with the objects, but also thinking about the public and public programming and access. Yeah. Is that, yeah, a balancing act between the two? <laughs> yeah, I kind of have worked across the whole collection, yeah, really, exactly. um, but mainly working on design. So kind of my focus is on design, really. Mm -hmm. So design within transport. Um, but that obviously brings in um, aspects of the vehicles and um, aspects of kind of travelling the network and the way we travel the network, as well as the social history aspect yeah. of um, transport. Absolutely. So design, but also experience. That's really yeah. fascinating. So you're going to be speaking about something specifically textiles related today um, that, that kind of evokes a part of um, your role at London Transport Museum. But before we get on to that, I'd be interested to know if you had a pre-existing interest in textiles and fashion kind of personally. Yeah, so before I came to the museum, I uh, studied at the University of Sussex. So I studied history oh, of art. snap. Really? <laughs> no, that. Yeah. That's funny. Um, Weird. We'll talk about that often. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I studied um, undergraduate in history of art mm -hmm. for three years at the University of Sussex. During that time, I um, was interested in, in fashion and textiles, in particular kind of dress history. And I did my undergraduate dissertation, actually had two dissertations, mm -hmm. short dissertations. So one of them was on Venetian Chopin shoes, mm -hmm. so platform shoes. Um, worn during the Renaissance in Venice um, and kind of how those shoes um, which were worn by women of the nobility um, how that showed well when they wore those shoes they would wear more luxurious fabrics so it showed their wealth and their status um, but it was also 
kind of a way of their um, husbands keeping mm. track of them often. Oh, wow. um, <laughs> because these shoes were very high, sometimes up to a metre high, oh, um, these women would need two attendants in order to just be able to walk, and they wouldn't be able to walk very far, uh, but they also towered over everyone else. So yeah. It was a, a kind of a way of um, the husbands keeping track mm. of women, but also meant that they they couldn't really um, dance with other people right. and they couldn't go very far. So, um, so that was one of my dissertations. Yeah, that's fascinating because I mean that's a form of like literal social standing. Because yes. when you said shoes, I thought yeah, that is normally a demonstration of wealth and status, but it's also um, affects the way you interact with the space and the surroundings. So mm. I thought it was going to then be maybe, and I, I'm interested in fashion that is. A, to do with women taking up public space and interactions and it's interesting you did something that's the counter of that that's the way yeah. in which it can be a form of restraint um, as Absolutely. well as a demonstration of wealth yeah yeah. Especially in the past, yeah. you know, um, in the 16th century, it's a very different, yeah, very different space. Absolutely. Um, so then your other dissertation? So my other dissertation was on kind of fashion accessories. So I focused on um, morning jewellery. Mm. Uh, morning has an M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Yeah. <laughs> um, over at lunchtime. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that dissertation focused on hair work in morning mm. jewellery. Um, so kind of how hair uh, was used within um, jewellery after someone passed away mm. and how kind of hair was used as a symbol of both, both a love token, mm. so it was given to loved ones kind of as a token um, of their love, yeah. but then also when someone passed away it was kind of would evoke memories of mm. that person um, and it was also everlasting, so mm. hair doesn't die, so kind of had that symbolic um, feeling as well. Yeah. So that was my other dissertation. Yeah, that's intriguing. Yeah. So both about fashion as a communicator, or but also mm -hmm. about it being in relation to relationships and the way that yeah, fashion can link to individuals and their hold over you. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, very curious. Um, so after my undergraduate, I did a master's um, at Sussex as well, which was in art history and museum curating. And during that, I kind of focused more actually focused on fashion textiles mm -hmm. again um, but I focused on fashion um, fashion from nature basically so um, fur feathers wool kind of anything that came from nature mm -hmm. uh, but that was more from a collections care point of view so how you would care for those objects right. yeah yes. that's great so that bit, then it becomes a, an applied skill for the life of those objects that's really interesting so your interest in your work demonstrate um, I think first of all that you don't, when you're working with a museum, it doesn't have to explicitly have fashionable textiles in the title in order to be related to the subject, which I think is really important. I get a lot of people coming who think, to me who think there's a pool of maybe four places that you could work, but actually it's something that runs through a, a lot of um, subjects and collecting areas. But also that, therefore, as a subject, fashion and textiles can be used to discuss different elements of daily life and design. Was that an aspect of this role and perhaps the project that we're about to speak about um, that particularly appealed to you? Yeah, I think, because um, I've kind of always had an interest in, in textiles, um, that kind of firstly appealed me to like mm. this, this job role. But then after that, I kind of realised that maquette has such a wider appeal and it's mm. part of every 
everyone's everyday life um, of traveling around London and traveling on the network. And interestingly, when I was doing the project, I did a symposium and um, the people who came to the symposium were so varied. Mm. I thought that was really interesting that you'd get transport enthusiasts, you'd get um, people from a textiles background, mm. you'd get students, you'd get volunteers, you'd also get people from a vehicle design background mm -hmm. as well. I think Maquette has a really kind of wider yeah. social appeal. Although it's textiles, it's part of the whole industrial design yeah. of a vehicle. Definitely, and it can act as a unifier between those different elements you've spoken about having interests in, you know, the design and the construction through to the personal and the social. Yeah. Which is great. So we've kind of teased it along the way, but it'd be great if you could introduce the pro project properly and also perhaps, you know, we've kept using the word maquette confidently but maybe uh, give, explain what maquette is just in case anyone listening doesn't know. So to start off with I'll explain <laughs> what maquette is because um, if you've got this far and you don't know what yeah. maquette is you might be wondering. Um, you have googled it and we'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. um, so maquette is um, it comes from the French word for carpet and it's a tough woolen fabric that's used on um, upholstery on public transport um, all over the world but in particular in London you see it on the underground, on buses, on trains as well, going across across the UK. So it's made out of wool and nylon. It's 85% wool um, and 15% nylon. And it's been used from 1910 onwards in mm. London um, on trains and buses. Amazing. So yeah. it's literally durable, but also durable as a design and as a, a solution to that everyday need. Yes. Um, and it's specifically designed for certain vehicles as well. I think that's something that maybe people don't don't notice or don't mm. think about. But the fabric that you're sitting on is specifically designed for for those vehicles. Yeah, and for your comfort okay. as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's a kind of cultural code to that as well. Like the idea that if, if anyone's listening on a bus or a tube right now, they should look behind them and see what they're sat on. Yeah, and consider yeah. it because yeah, they are all designed very carefully to relate to that route and its interests and needs, aren't they? Yeah. So perhaps you could do, describe your celebrating Britain's transport textile project as well. Now that you've introduced the material it's surrounded. Yeah, um, it's a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> During the project, I kind of say celebrating Britain's transport textile, um, but it basically is a project on maquette. It was a research project and the reason we realised we needed this research project was because there were a lot of gaps in our knowledge. Um, we had a lot of maquette samples, so we have over 400 samples uh -huh. of maquette, as well as the maquette on the vehicles that we have within the collection and kind of larger rolls of maquette that we use for sometimes in restoration projects. So we really realised that we had a gap in our knowledge, but we also had a gap in some of the maquettes so we we needed to do some contemporary collecting mm. um, so we didn't have a lot of the designs which were on the network today so the project was mainly research-based but it also had quite a lot of public outcomes mm. um, so we had a maquette themed depot open weekend we had a maquette symposium we also had three maquette talks with mm. designers and commissioners of maquette we had a kind of a learning project that went on alongside the project as well which was it was working with St Mungo's the homelessness charity so it was a 12-week project where we had a freelance educator who went to St Mungo's and they would work with people who are homeless or have experienced homelessness basically 
talking about maquette and um, kind of working out what it is and then they would do their own um, kind of practical art so mm. they did some drawing of maquette they tried doing a little bit of weaving with oh, paper <laughs> and basically kind of breaking down and understanding what maquette is yeah and we had that on display in the museum uh, we actually still have it on display mm. in the museum <laughs> i think that was everything yeah lots of research visits basically yeah and oral history interviews as well mm-hmm. we did um, oral history interviews with People who uh, commission maquettes, designers of maquettes, manufacturers of maquettes as well. Great, yeah. yeah. So it sees the full cycle through as well. I like that idea of going from design to making to actual experience and impact and also making people reconsider the everyday. I think sometimes that can be a really useful way of kind of uh, commandeering or applying the subject of fashion or textiles as people underestimate because they're just so used to it and they experience it forever. But actually mm. taking someone back and as you say, with the workshop around weaving, making someone think about how that thing that they don't appreciate comes to be (laughs) gives it an extra uh, lilt and importance, perhaps. Absolutely. I think a lot of people don't notice what they are sat on every day. And um, it's kind of in their subconscious. So so they probably realise that they're sat on a material, but they don't they may not know what kind of design mm. they're sat on or what the material is made out of. I think that kind of good design works within within the environment. Mm. So when you've got a good maquette design, it should be comfortable. Um, you shouldn't be able to see the kind of dirt, wear and tear yeah. that you have on the um, on the material, which naturally kind of occurs. Millions of people travelling yeah, through sure. London every day. It should just work within its designed environment. Mm. Um, and it's only, I think, when, when a design doesn't really work, that's when people notice it. Okay. So you get on a vehicle and you might think, oh, this is a really bright design, mm. or, oh, it's not very comfortable. This is or, jarring yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not very comfortable to sit on for long periods of time, mm. or um, you can see the kind of wear and tear. Mm. Um, that's when you really notice the design, yeah. is when it doesn't work within its environment. Yeah. So kind of good design works within the environment yeah we'll we'll relate it to the vehicle and and the journey as a whole that must be an odd experience for the maquette designers and manufacturers because basically your product your piece your work is only being appreciated if it's not being noticed (laughs) if you know what I mean you know Mm. uh, whereas with others you'll get praised perhaps for visual impact and and for the very thing that you're saying they want to avoid of it being too noticeable in a way Mm. maybe they it's it's the fact that it can slide by and still be there in 10 years that will be the mark of a good maquette (laughs) Absolutely, but interestingly, people kind of retrospectively notice what they have okay. sat on in the past. Mm-hmm. So people come into our shop or they come in to look at um, our maquette collection at the depot and they'll be able to point out a maquette that they sat on okay. maybe 20 yeah. or 30 years ago right. and say, I used to travel on, say, the district line yeah. every day to school <laughs> and I remember that maquette yeah, from, when yeah, I, yeah. from when I was travelling. So it so kind it of evokes happen. memories. Yeah. Um, which is, I think is really interesting, yeah, is that people kind of must take it into their subconscious at the time, but they don't really realise. Mm. And then later on, it kind of evokes those memories. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it gradually builds to the uh, cultural icon from the everyday. Yeah. Okay. Um, perhaps with, uh, with that in mind, we should move on to your object choices. So you've brought a couple of things with you today to show me. Could you please introduce um, and perhaps describe for the listeners the objects you've brought with you? So I have brought a maquette sample 
It is 85% wool and 15% nylon. The design is called roundel, but it's also known as bullseye. Hmm. Often there's a couple of names associated to a design. <laughs> one of them may be the designer's name and the other one might be the commissioner. We yeah. named it after that. It's designed by Joy Jarvis in 1947. It was used on the 1938 tube stock in 1948 um, on the Bakerloo and Northern Lines and it was also used on the district line at that time. To describe it, it's a little <laughs> bit difficult to describe. <laughs> Sorry, I was um, yeah. we, can, we, can, we can add a picture but let's see the best we can. Perhaps. Yeah, um, so it has a red roundel motif with light green and dark green circle and a divided diamond pattern uh, with kind of intersecting lines. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> that's <laughs> I can do it. Yeah, absolutely. And each of those build up to be almost like a square frame around the roundel and then it repeats yeah. across the maquette. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. It's really, really striking. And I like the contrast between the different um, colour works. Was this um, designer someone that you became particularly interested in through the project as well? Or? So this designer, um, we didn't actually know designed this maquette. Okay. Um, so there was another designer who was associated with this design. That designer was called Edmund Chapman and he was the head designer at uh, the main manufacturers at the time, John Holdsworth and Company Limited. Mm -hmm. So this design was um, attached to him. While I was doing my research, mainly at TfL Corporate Archives, they hold a lot of the original archival material, so a lot of the original letters from the designers to the commissioners. Mm -hmm. I realised that this design was um, brought up quite a lot in letters mm -hmm. um, to this designer called Joy Jarvis. Often the um, design is not named okay. so it becomes a little bit difficult to distinguish which designs are which mm. um, and obviously there weren't any kind of images at that time it was all just letters yeah. um, so the designs were mainly referred to by their design number mm -hmm. which was a number which was given to that particular design by the manufacturers of maquette and luckily we had a sample of this roundel maquette with the design number stitched to it right. so it was very easy to say <laughs> this design was designed by this designer yeah and um, so we were able to reattribute it to the correct designer who was Joy Jarvis mm -hmm. she's not a particularly well-known designer um actually says in some of the letters that she was quite a new and young designer at the time but yeah, I'm very happy yeah. to have reattributed it to a female designer as yeah. well, you know, she's recognised for her work because it's a very strong um, maquette and one of my favourite designs as well. Yeah, absolutely, and goes on to have a, a, you know, a good strong history and service for the city, so that's been interesting. I really yeah. like the element of kind of detective work to what you've just described, that mm. it's about pairing and applying but also questioning what you already know about a design and therefore through that giving someone due credit. I think that's quite, yeah, that's appealing. Yeah. But there, did you find a lot female designers working in this field? There were actually quite a few female designers working on maquette designs. Mm -hmm. they, they were not necessarily just textile designers. Mm -hmm. One of the main designers of maquettes that we have in our collection is Enid Marks. Mm -hmm. She did uh, five or six maquette designs for London Transport during the 1930s and 40s. She's obviously quite a well-known designer. Mm. Uh, she designed posters, um, but other kinds of textiles design as well. But she, yeah, so she was quite a well-known textile designer. So there was Enid Marks, and then there was Marion Dawn as well who is also quite a well-known designer. She also did five yeah. or six designs <laughs> during the 1930s. And then 
a little bit later on, during the 1960s, there was a designer called Marianne Straub. So there were quite a few female designers. There weren't actually that many known designers okay. of maquettes in yeah. general. There's only really a handful of known designers. Mm -hmm. A lot of the designs are not attributed to a designer at all. Okay, that's um, curious. I yeah. thought it was going to be that you are going to say that there were individuals who then got commissioned, but they weren't explicitly maquette designers, or that mm. someone's design got translated or something. But, but, but it's literally just that that's not something... London Transport kind of accredited and kept a record of, is that the issue? At certain times, mm. they they would have commissioned established textile designers mm -hmm. to create maquette, but at other times, they weren't as interested kind of in the design. Mm -hmm. um, so it really would depend on the commissioner. So yeah. sometimes the design would just be kind of almost off the peg design from the manufacturers of maquette. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the designs would have been done in-house by London Transport or TfL today. Yeah. Um, so a designer wouldn't be attached to it yeah, in the same yeah. way. Yeah, so it's that, that, that's interesting because it kind of reveals another side of design history because we tend to be very... Um, I think the kind of art history model often gets applied to fashion history or to design history when actually yeah. when you're working, when you're given essentially a design brief or a problem to solve or a commission to kind of see through, there's less kind of focus on the creativity or at least less respect or note going towards the creativity mm. of the individual is there. Mm. It tends to be that that might get lost within the wider narrative. How yeah. that piece came to be. <laughs> and I think this is industrial design as yeah. well. So it's made, you know, to be functional. Yeah. Um, and often designers aren't associated with that particular design because it was yeah. kind of part of the whole design process. Yeah. They weren't kind of saying, okay, the maquette is particularly important for mm -hmm. this vehicle. The whole vehicle yeah. was important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one piece that has to chime with the yeah, rest. Yeah. Did you find that with contemporary maquette designers, did they see it as an artistic or creative practice or was it that they, you know, very clearly still part of an industrial uh, network? I think a bit of a mixture. Mm -hmm. So we did um, an oral history interview with Heatherwick Studio, who designed the new Rootmaster. Mm -hmm. And for them, they wanted to design the maquette as well as the whole vehicle. And for them, I think the maquette design was quite important part of the of the whole vehicle. So they they saw that as um, as something they wanted to kind of to specifically design. Mm. I think Wallace saw also. Uh, so Wallace saw our designers of of maquette today. They have designed quite a lot of maquettes on the network today. So the overground maquette, the tramlink maquette. Um, as well as the barman maquette, which you will see on the underground, on lots of the lines on the underground. They are kind of a design studio, so I think they probably see, um, you know, because they only design the maquette mm. for Transport for London, um, they would see it probably as an artistic. Yeah, sure. So it's one brief thing. that they're meeting within their wider practice. Yeah. That's really interesting. So that, those are two very different approaches, either being almost holistic and seeing, you know, as you said, maquette as one of many design elements within a wider frame and therefore the first example wanting to design it as well as the rest of the vehicle or it being an external given a brief given a question to answer effectively yeah so i can imagine you end up with very different results mm -hmm. thank you that is a brilliant example that kind of weaves us into talking about contemporary practice but also gives us opportunity to think about 
those creatives and makers behind them and in particular some of the women who might have got lost within those networks. So a really, really interesting example. Some of my other guests for the series, um, I've spoken to them about the importance of when studying fashion objects, of thinking about the way the garment was made as well as the impact it had when it was worn. Um, do you feel that something comparable happens with uh, transport textiles? Like was, you know, did you want to emphasise as much how these things come to be as their effect and linked to the everyday, which we've kind of touched on already? Mm -hmm. I think because maquette is functional, the way that it's manufactured is really important. Mm. So it kind of really, the way it's manufactured makes it really durable and makes it long lasting, um, but also makes it kind of visually appealing as mm. well. But it needs to have all of these kind of technical technical details that maybe another textiles kind of sample doesn't need to have. Yeah. So for maquette, it needs to, as I mentioned already, it needs to be hard wearing, but it needs to also kind of hide signs of dirt, mm. wear and tear over time. We often use a combination of cut and uncut maquette. Mm -hmm. That makes it, again, extra hard wearing, but it also gives maquette its kind of unique look and feel. Okay. Do you describe the way yeah. in which it's it's manufactured? I remember that I came to your symposium and I mm. thought that was fascinating, even just literally seeing the weave happen, you know, it's curious seeing how it comes to be. It's yeah. a surprisingly complicated process. <laughs> it is it's quite complicated, so I'll try my best. Yeah, sorry. No, that's yeah, fine. another challenge the <laughs> So you can have um, cut, uncut, or a combination of cut and uncut maquette. Um, so cut type is the kind of velvety feel, and that is when um, literally a knife comes across and cuts the loops. Right. <laughs> I need to start again. <laughs> I'm trying to think. Sorry. To it. No, no, it's fine. I, just, uh, I remember being really struck by, um, I think there was a short film in a factory or something, and I remember yeah. finding it really, really striking. And the way that... Um, I was also really interested hearing about the way of colour combinations within the maquette. Maybe that's something to talk about. Yeah. Um, how there was very small number of colours that you could use, or but it was more about the combination so that the layering ended up building a yeah. different colour effect. So you can use, mainly there's four colours involved in a maquette design. Mm -hmm. Any more than that, a design becomes kind of too complicated, okay. but also more expensive. Often, because you can only use four colours, often um, two colours will be combined very closely together to create kind of another fifth colour. Mm. So quite a lot of designers try and include, yeah, two, two colours mm -hmm. very close together. It is woven on um, jacquard looms. Mm -hmm. So Chimera Fabrics are the main manufacturer of Maquette today and they have their dyeing and some of their weaving facilities in Yorkshire. But the actual Maquette is woven in Lithuania. Mm. So they're woven on um, Metex looms. So that produces um, cut and uncut Maquette. So um, cut Maquette is that kind of velvety feel and loop maquette is more of a kind of uh, robust, durable feel. Often TFL maquette has both cut and uncut. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah, a meeting of minds. Yeah. We return meeting processes through that as well. So we've spoken quite a few times today about the idea of this being an underappreciated or at least something that people uh, 
don't consciously notice it ends up weaving into the subconscious as you said um, part of our everyday landscape and experience do you think that working on this project has made you more conscious of kind of reading or noticing design details in your own surroundings are you picking up on other everyday items that you previously might not have seen yeah I think so I think it makes you a lot more aware mm. of your surroundings because you kind of realize when you work on a material like this you kind of realize how much you don't notice mm. when you're traveling on the network because you've got so many other things to try and focus on sure. um and try and trying to dodge people <laughs> and trying to find your way that um that actually you don't you don't really notice the way mm the network is designed yeah um so i definitely i mean i definitely noticed the maquette that's, that's a very <laughs> difficult thing to, to stop noticing See it in your sleep now <laughs> yeah so i'm kind of always looking at and looking at the way it's the way it's been manufactured or the way it's been upholstered or kind of the way it's been used as well yeah. um by people on the network mm. but i think i also notice even just the kind of wayfinding through the transport network everything is designed you mm. know uh, we managed to find our way from you know victoria line to the district line quite easily mm. sometimes and people don't really realize that that's because the whole network has been designed in yeah. that way every move you make is orchestrated and anticipated yeah, yeah. absolutely you heard it through a design frame yeah <laughs> yeah um, i mean i meant that to sound more positive than it is <laughs> <laughs> So I notice, notice small details like that as well mm. on the network in particular. Yeah, yeah. curious, good to be aware. Um, so I asked you to bring in an object that would spark a conversation around Maquette today, um, but I think other strands in London Transport Museum's collections could also speak to this theme. Um, in particular, I know you mentioned that you also work with a poster collection here, and it holds some brilliant designs that kind of implicitly link to elegance and style in shopping in London. Are there any examples that you think of as highlights or any other style-conscious objects that you think might be of interest to our listeners? So we have quite a strong poster collection at London Transport Museum. We currently have an exhibition called Poster Girls, which focuses on um, on female poster designers from the beginning of the 1900s onwards, um, right up until today. So um, we have kind of, yeah, a very strong kind of poster collection. My kind of favourite posters are from the 1920s and 30s. That was kind of when female designers in particular, um, there were quite a lot of female designers mm -hmm. around and um, there's a big a kind of a particular focus on, on shopping and um, the women in the posters look very glamorous okay. and I think they're kind of seen as like a modern woman mm -hmm. so what was interesting was that it wasn't men producing those posters mm. but it was women producing those posters of women yeah. and what women wanted to look like and yeah. you know what they wanted to purchase and uh, yeah. that was quite a strong way of of advertising in a way yeah um kind of seeing modern elegant independent women yeah absolutely um, so associating the lines and being able to literally transport yourself and kind of mm. a sense of uh, independent travel being associated with style and experience of the city yeah i'm curious about the idea of um the female artist behind them as well because that's an act of independence and creativity and employment mm -hmm. in itself and mm. because um, they're being commissioned do you think that was something that london transport were being savvy about and you know you're you're asking female illustrators and artists to appeal to a female audience or do you think mm. it was more that 
those women artists were aware of what their audience would actually want um, and had those images of modern women in it already. <laughs> yeah, I think it was probably a combination of mm. both. I think London Transport probably knew that, you know, that was a clever way of doing it, really, yeah. that women knew what what other women may may want or mm. may appeal to them. But also it was an opportunity for these women to kind of show their independence, really. And yeah. a lot of the posters did have women by themselves or women yeah. in groups of other women. It, it wasn't kind of, you know, a man with a yeah, woman. you it are was, being chaperoned. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Your favourite pastime. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't at all like that. Sometimes yeah. it would be women with children, but they were kind of seen as as going to events mm. or, um, you know, like, very independent. Yeah. Which that, I thought was really interesting. Yeah, that was really, really striking, seeing kind of modern life in action, really. That's yeah. what's being advertised. Yeah. And then that's in turn almost a double advertisement because it's advertised, mm. well, triple. So you're advertising a modern mm. way of living. Through that, you're advertising transport on these London networks and lines. Um, but then you're also advertising London fashion, London shopping, perhaps. Was yeah. that something, almost a collaborative element? Yeah. And themes? Yeah. Yeah, definitely, I'd say so. Yeah. So we've got some particular examples uh, to highlight or to mention. <laughs> I think one of my favourite artists is um, Dora Batty um, because she, her kind of posters were very simple. So they just have an image of a modern woman um, kind of wearing very fashionable, elegant clothing with her hair done. Mm. And the posters would just say, you know, um, come out and see the roses by yeah. underground so it wasn't kind of uh, focusing on a particular event or anything like that the yeah. focus was on the woman okay and it was kind of a way of the underground kind of saying we're up to date we're modern yeah. we you know commission women to mm. produce these posters I think she, she's just a really kind of strong and yeah. versatile and successful artist as well yeah. so We've kind of spoken there about that interconnection between selling or kind of promoting London transport as a part of a London lifestyle and different images that that might hold or kind of experiences for those uh, those who are being transported. Do you think that London has a particularly strong history of links between its um, design aesthetic and its fashion? London has always had very particular um, fashion networks, but also particular style tribes. And I think that London Transport has been very clever at one point or another mm. in expressing itself look at with with the people who can link you from one area to the other if it, even if it's mm. as simple as getting a bus down Regent Street or if it's yeah. getting the overground now out to Shoreditch whatever style tribe you're trying to be a part of but also whatever pro product you're trying to push London Transport has a role in getting you there and therefore making you yeah. a part of that lifestyle yeah for sure and I think sometimes the interestingly the stations as well mm. um, so if you're kind of in central London or kind of London Bridge I find that the the, the station architecture, so that kind of very almost like cold, mm. like metal but modern yeah. feeling of the kind of city of London stations, mm. connects quite a lot with the fashion. Yeah. Um, so people, you know, going through in suits, yeah. and I, I find that quite interesting. That yeah. some of the um, 
the stations kind of reflect the fashion in that area yeah as absolutely well. yeah, I agree and what the yeah what the footfall in that area is is, is tending mm. towards whether you're all yeah. heading on a night out or you're all heading to the office mm. what kind of um office you're heading towards so we've spoken kind of about your professional practice and perspective um and some strands within the collect collection here at London Transport Museum within that I'm going to get a bit more personal now mm-hmm. that's okay so I was curious to know if you collect anything yourself um, personally I have a small collection of maquettes yeah, okay, there we go did <laughs> Which, that um, before the project or is that a result didn't actually okay. it was a result of the project uh-huh. kind of was when I was doing some of the research visits mm-hmm. so when I went up to Chimera Fabrics, the manufacturers of maquette, and mm. kind of got small samples. And when I went to see some designers of maquette, again, I got a few small samples. Yeah. So I kind of have built up a little collection of maquettes, mm-hmm. which I keep in a plastic bag so that, <laughs> so that moths don't get yeah, through yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. We'll do something with it at some point. No, no. <laughs> I like that. I've interviewed a few curators in this series, and there is such a kind of distinction between professional practice and personal collection or wardrobe kind of you know mm. kind of in terms of the life that those objects lead or how they kept I also I have quite a collection of leotards okay. <laughs> like sparkly <laughs> leotards um so in my spare time just for fun I do aerial so aerial Amazing. circus so a bit of kind of hoop and trapeze and silks and rope so over the years I've kind of built up a leotard collection kind of by accident yeah. but, um, so, so I've got a lot of sequins yeah <laughs> a lot of sequins in my wardrobe and then some kind of heirlooms as well so my mum got my grandma's collection mm. of um, dresses and wow. um, her wardrobe basically so I have a few pieces from my grandma's wardrobe mm-hmm. So they're kind of, they come out for special occasions, but yeah. but not often. Yeah, I was um, going to say, again, I'm interested with curators in the distinction between, because um, we're used to in our everyday lives at work, mm. having things to preserve, but then what effect does that have on your personal relationship to clothing and things? So are those pieces, you know, heirlooms and relics that will remain in a certain part of the wardrobe to, to be remembered and admired, or are things still an active service that you'll end up wearing and... I like to wear them Mm -hmm. because I think it's all very well kind of having those things and having them as something which stays in your wardrobe. But actually, I feel like the only way to really connect with um, that person um, and that piece of clothing is to wear them again. And I really like vintage clothing. Mm -hmm. I mainly buy um, secondhand or vintage clothing just because I feel that they are the garments are made mm. better um, and I like the way they feel and it it kind of suits my personal style mm-hmm. as well so I think that is kind of that does connect to me being a curator yeah, I think and absolutely. the way I kind of um, I look at my job and uh, it's also I like to buy things which last as yeah. well um, but there are a few a few occasions that I've I've got out my grandma's dresses <laughs> and worn them and um, my mum has actually kept my grandma's wedding dress oh, wow. which I have not got out <laughs> yet but at some point yeah. will will yeah. wear. That's so nice the idea of that being an inherited piece and that's really about that's kind of the past life or the past experience of clothing that these were items that would be altered and reworn or handed down within a family or within a friendship group and that's something kind of a personal contact that we've lost sight of I think a little bit it becomes so individualized but also so throwaway so I really like the idea of the appreciation and also I don't know about you but I love vintage as well and I think that because of my job and my role I appreciate vintage and I appreciate the um 
Whereas I'm not squeamish about the past mm. wearer. Whereas I have other friends who would like the vintage aesthetic, but couldn't stand the, wear the idea of wearing something that someone else has already worn. Whereas for me, if it's been dry cleaned, then <laughs> I feel perfectly... Yeah. I, I like the idea of being, you know, perhaps the third generation that's come up yeah. in contact to that garment. Um, yeah, yeah I really same? like that. Yeah. yeah, I really like... Obviously, sometimes you don't know the history of an object, yeah. but um, I find it particularly interesting when you do know the history of mm. an object. So... Um, if you know the past wearer or if you know kind of where it's been made or yeah. where it may have been worn, I find that particularly interesting. Yeah. Um, and I just love the feel of, of vintage clothing, that it kind of has, has had a history and often it's made in a kind of quite a traditional mm. um, technique as well, which I find you don't you don't really have yeah. with, with modern clothes today. As you say, they're really throwaway. Mm. So I try not to kind of shop in kind of <laughs> big high street shops. But I also like shopping in, in second-hand charity mm. shops as well because yeah. you at least kind of are giving something back when you buy something yeah, new. Absolutely. You're in a different form of kind of consumer cycle at that point. Yeah. But I really, yeah, I think that's strong that the, the kind of main strand there is the appreciation of the past and respect yeah. for the past wearer but also respect for the maker, mm -hmm. which I think is very, very important and in that, that level of quality that you can garner through that element. And I think that definitely links back to your work as a curator. Mm. So it's fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Georgia. Thank it was you. really interesting to talk to you and hear about your maquette. And thank you all very much for listening.